up. First Samuel chapter 16. We continue to march through this book, uh, reading five chapters a week on our own, and then teaching on one particular part of that. And so this week we'll be looking at chapter 16, the first half in particular, but a little bit of time in the second half also. People love a good origin story, whether it's like if you're a movie guy, uh, like the Marvel movies that came out, they've made $25 billion by giving origin story after origin story, where this latest superhero kind of came from and how they're brought there. But if that's not your world, maybe, maybe biographies. Uh, maybe you enjoy reading biographies. I, I have, and one of the things that I enjoy is the taking a character that you sort of know their public persona from maybe some significant event later in life, and then you get a chance to read about like their origin. What, what led to that person, that event that maybe is more famous? This passage gives us David's origin. This figure that would be so prominent, the rest of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, almost half of the Psalms, continually repeated throughout the New Testament as well, pointing back to this figure, this chapter kind of gives the origin there. And it's maybe surprisingly ordinary. He was the youngest of eight brothers. He was working with dirty sheep in the field when this chapter uh, takes place. When Samuel came and tells David's father Jesse to gather all of his sons for a special meal. He does, but he doesn't even include David. David's like a non-thought as the youngest and the smallest, and he's left out in the field, as we'll see here in just a moment. And yet, by the time the chapter's done, God will say of David, this is him. This is, this is the one. But we make a mistake if we read this as like a rags-to-riches type story where we get this inspirational message that we too can start from the bottom and work our way to the top if we're only creative enough or courageous enough or mighty enough or even trust God enough if we kind of put a spiritual spin on it. It is not a rags to riches story that's an example for us in that sense. It's a story about God, about God who chooses and works in surprising ways to place this man in this position that he desires as, this, uh, as we walk through this chapter, the reason I chose this is it, it really sets the stage for the rest of the book and what's to come as we see David and Saul as these two figures kind of overlapping in the rest of our book. Um, by the time this chapter is done, we've got two kings, essentially. One, the ruling, reigning, but crashing King Saul. And the other, the anointed, but hunted David, who's been anointed but is not yet on the throne. By the time we get to the end of the chapter, that's the situation, and that will run through the rest of this book of 1 Samuel. Let me go ahead and read this now. We'll read just the first 13 verses, and then briefly when we get to it, we'll look at the rest of the chapter. So 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came, trembling to meet him, and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he took Eliab, or Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all of the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. We'll look at this really in, in three parts where each part of the the, the outline there will, will come from a significant quote from each of those three parts to kind of walk us through it. And then we'll really briefly look at the last section of the chapter as well. And the first part in verses 1 to 3, I think we can sum up with this statement from God where he says, Go, for I have selected a king for myself. What I've noticed when we began this chapter that Samuel is grieving. He is He's emotionally probably wiped out. And it has been a tumultuous time for him emotionally. And you can imagine that. Uh, years earlier, a few years earlier, in chapter 8, the people had demanded for him to give them a king. And he felt rejected by that. Brought it to the Lord. The Lord said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them this king. And so he did. And this king, reluctantly though chosen by Samuel, initially seemed to do well, and then by chapter 13 and chapter 15, he's crashing in disobedience, and the Lord rejects him from being king. And now Samuel is grieving about this, perhaps wondering, Lord, what's next? This nation is in turmoil. Who's going to lead now? I'm getting old, and he's grieving. And the Lord says to him, how long? How long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him? God has a plan. And we've seen this throughout 1 Samuel. That the things seem dark. The book begins with Eli and his sons are abusing the system and it seems dark. And yet God raises up Samuel. And then Saul crashes and it seems dark. And yet God is raising up David. Uh, the Lord, his plans are not thwarted. He continues to, to unfold his plan here. But he tells him, and this is significant. I think look at the end of verse 1. He says, I have selected a king for myself, for myself. That's the contrast. Throughout here, they've been asking for a king for them. In chapter 8, verse 5, they said, they said to Samuel, the people said to Samuel, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Chapter 8, verse 22, God says, listen to their voice and appoint, appoint them a king. 
They want this? Give them a king. In chapter 12, Samuel says to the people, here is the king whom you have chosen. He keeps saying, it's, here's your king. You want this? Here it is. And they saw how it turned out. And now God says, appoint a king for me. A king for myself. Their king had been a total disaster and disobedience that crashed. He says, no, appoint a king for myself. This king would not be a perfect king, but he would be a king after his own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, when we see the first cracks in Saul's armor, it foreshadows this coming future king. In 1 Samuel 13, Samuel said to Saul after he had disobeyed the Lord, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom uh, over Israel forever. He says, Saul, you could have continued to reign, but you weren't following the Lord. He says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out, and I want you to see this, for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He says there's a new king. There's a new king that's going to come on the scene, and it's a king that God is choosing for himself with a, a man after his own heart. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 16. Samuel's afraid. He says, how can I go? He'll kill me. Samuel's not a fool. Between where Samuel is and where God tells him to go in Bethlehem, on the way there is Saul. And he knows if Saul finds out that he's on the way because God says to go anoint another king, Saul's going to take his life. And so God tells him to give part of the story. Tell him that you're going to sacrifice, which is true. God's not telling him to lie, but he's not revealing all of it. He says, go tell him that you're on the way to a sacrifice, which is true. If we had more time, we could maybe unpack some of the ethics of this in a situation that's life or death. Are we obligated to tell the truth? Well, God doesn't have him lie, but he doesn't disclose all the information. So he's honest, but not fully disclosing everything. Well, we go from there to the next part of this, and maybe the line that could be pulled out where it says that God sees not as man sees. God sees not as man sees. He makes his way down there. The people are nervous, uh, perhaps because they know there's this building conflict with Saul and they don't want to get in the middle of it. Perhaps because they know that Samuel had just taken his sword and hacked a foreign king to death. And they see that sword there and they're like, Samuel, what are you going to do with that sword? Um, so they're nervous, though, for whatever reason. And he says, no, I come, I come peacefully. We're going to have this feast. And, and he invites specifically Jesse to come with his sons. And as these sons parade through, God has told him one of these sons is going to be anointed. And so the very first one comes through. Do you see that? Uh, Eliab, he's the oldest. From, from what comes afterwards, we see he's tall and good looking. And Samuel immediately thinks, this is the one. He did not learn his lesson from Saul. He thinks, this is the one. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this is the one that God is going to choose. And look at verse 7. God's response is so Classic, and it is probably the best known part of this narrative. Verse 7 the Lord says to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at his height, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It says, the Man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. This is both a statement of our limitations and our distorted perspective. We can't look at the heart on one hand. I can see you. I can get to know you. I can hear 
certain things that you say, but I can never fully know what's in your heart. But God can. But it's also a statement about our distorted perspective. We tend to look at outwardly impressive things and try to build up outwardly impressive things and neglect the heart. And that is a distorted perspective. Unless you think this is just true in the Old Testament in Israel, it's true today. Just reading a study in uh, Finland. And in Finland, they, they did a study to see how, how, how different things affect the public's perception of a candidate for political office. And so if they perceive that a candidate is competent, it increases their favorability by 5%. Okay? If they're competent, 5%. Trustworthy, 5%. If they perceive them as attractive, 20%. And that's not just the crazy Scandinavians, right? That's like, that's what we do. We, we're more concerned often about does somebody look attractive and tall and various things. Even, even just the height piece of that, um, in American presidential elections, the taller candidate wins 60% of the time. The last time we had a president that was shorter than the average height was 1896 with William McKinley. We, we prioritize these things today, even though we, we ought to know better. Uh, height is irrelevant, and, and yet we, we value things like this. And it says, no, the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. He looks at something different. Friends, this is both good news and bad news. Um, here's the good news. God cares about your heart. And so statistically, half of us are less attractive than average, right? Is that statistics? Um, <laughs> so it kind of ripples through as you think about that. So if, if our goal is... If our goal is, i got to be the most attractive, i, I got to look the best, i got to be the tallest, there's often very little we can do about that. And, and that can be a crushing weight on people. Uh, honestly, I, Instagram can have a crushing weight on young girls in particular. They try to achieve this Instagram ideal, and, and then they, they feel like they can't do it. And there's study after study showing just this weight of depression that often comes over young girls when they can't measure up to this outward perspective. And, and so it is a relief that the Lord cares about the heart. Heath Thomas comments on this. He says, many of us have tried to measure up to the world's criteria, but few people ever feel as if they have succeeded the stress of trying to have the perfect body, a successful career, a conflict-free family, all of these have eluded us. It comes as refreshing, freeing news that God is not particularly concerned with our earthly successes. It can be like a weight. It's the good news. The bad news is God cares about your heart. And here's why that is also kind of sobering news to us. It's a lot easier to polish up the outside to, to fool people, and yet God peers into the heart. And which of us can say, I come with a pure heart? The, the, the heart is the Bible's way of talking about the control center of the person. It's where we feel, but it's where we think, it's where we plan. And, and just to run through only verses from Proverbs that talk about the heart, we could look throughout Scripture, but just even to look in Proverbs alone, we see the importance of the heart. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Classic passage. 
The heart is where we are to be trusting in Him. 423, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Out of your heart flows the things of life. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. It will say in Proverbs 12, 25, we feel that. 1921, many plans are in a man's heart. It's our heart that we're planning, we're thinking, we're valuing for the future. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. And then perhaps most condemning, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? What's the presumed answer to that? No one. It's not like you ask that question and half the hands go up and say, yeah, I can, I can say that. Not from like our own work, certainly. We recognize that in our heart it is not clean, that there is sin that runs through that. And you might fool parents. You might fool friends. You might fool, fool teachers. You might fool small group leaders. But we cannot fool God. He sees the, the heart. Tells us in... 1 Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. He searches and understands fully every intent of the heart, which is good news if people are misunderstanding us, to know, okay, the Lord understands, but it's also sobering to, to know that it, I mean, how many of you would be embarrassed if I could take the thoughts of your heart and like broadcast them up on the screens here? He would, he would flee. <laughs> we all would because we know there's stuff that goes through that we're ashamed of. And yet the Lord fully knows all of that. And, and not only does he fully know, he says, come, come. We'll look at one more passage about the heart. This one out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. There's different terms that are used here. The word heart does come up, but there's others that are parallel terms. Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. That's another way of talking about the heart. The innermost part of me. Lord, you desire truth there. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, which is kind of a, an ointment. For I shall be, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He says, God, I have felt the the pressure of guilt and shame. Lord, let those bones rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, friends, who, who wrote this? David. The same David that is about to be selected. The same David who has said, this is a man after my own heart. The same David who God says, I look at the heart and I choose David. This David will crash in 2 Samuel, in shocking sin that flows out of his heart. And yet, what's the difference between David when that happens and Saul? When, when David, as we read in, uh, in chapters to come, crashes into sin and is confronted on it, this is what he says, Lord Forgive me. Lord, give me a clean heart. Lord, not just on the outer part that people can see, but in the very inside of me, make me clean. How did Saul respond? Ah, it's somebody else's fault. This is what Tom went through last week if you weren't here. Great, great message. Somebody else's fault. Um, 
Uh, would you just, Samuel, let me still be close to you. I want to at least kind of appear to be spiritual. David, when confronted, yes, he crashed, but he came to the Lord and he said, Lord, I need a clean heart. I need a clean heart. That's the difference. Saul wanted to appear righteous. David wanted a righteousness in his very heart that only God could give. Um, 22 years ago, I was in Alaska for the summer with a group of 29 other college guys from all over the country. There for 10 weeks, this summer mission project. And one of the guys, I, I know he's from the South. I think he was from Oklahoma. He, he shared with us one night this, this Latin motto that had become kind of a motto for these other Christian men he was with. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but it's because my Latin comes from a college guy in Oklahoma, right? So um, bear with me. If, if you know Latin and I mispronounce this, just, just overlook it. And this is the phrase, esse quam videre, and it means essentially to be rather than to appear. To be rather than to appear. That ought to be our motto. Lord, I, I don't want to appear humble. I want to be humble. Lord, I don't want to appear holy like a veneer out there. I want to be holy in the inner life because you have made me holy and because I am pursuing holiness out of the fear of the Lord. Lord, I don't want to just appear to kind of value spiritual things. I want from my heart to care about you. I want to be rather than merely to appear. God looks at the heart. And that's what we see in this passage. It's a sobering reminder especially because we see the impurity of our own hearts. And that is, that is the hope of the gospel, that it's not clean yourself up on the outside, but come, and he gives you a clean heart. We move from here to David. In these few brief verses, where finally God says, this is he. This is he. Look again at verse 11. Samuel knows that one of Jesse's sons is to be selected. All these sons parade through. Uh, one person described it like the Old Testament version of Cinderella, like son after son, none squeezes into the glass slipper that is Israel's kingship. And Samuel knows God said one of these sons would be king. So God doesn't lie. So, so what's the deal? And, and Jesse says, yeah, there's one more. He's, he's youngest. He's pretty small. He's out with the sheep. Um, Samuel says, bring him. And he brings him and the Lord says, this is him. This is the one. Not the oldest, which is what they would have assumed. Not the tallest. God often works to confound our expectations. I would certainly continue with Christ himself. That in Isaiah 52 and 53, looking ahead to Jesus, they say, uh, Isaiah as a prophet said, he had no stately form, he had no majesty that we should be drawn to him. We'll say in Psalms about Christ, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The one that they rejected, he's actually the most important one. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous, meaning shocking, surprising in our eyes. That is God's pattern throughout Old and New Testament to work in ways that surprise us. Not these older sons, not the biggest, not the tallest, not Saul, who seems so impressive, but David. And he anoints him and selects him. Not only does he select him, he empowers him with the Spirit. Look at verse 13 again. Samuel took the horn of oil, this anointing oil that he'd carried with him that sort of bookends this passage, 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. It's a description of God's Spirit empowering him for this task that had been given. God didn't merely call, he equipped. And then from here, there was trouble. Boredom first, he sent back to the field. And then, lest we think that David is just catapulted to the throne, it's going to be, it's going to be being lied about, having to flee for his life, hide in a cave as Saul goes crazy, basically, and tries to pursue him. Chapter after chapter after chapter before he's actually on the throne. Um, and yet, the Lord has selected him and equipped him at this point. Really quick, I want to look at how the rest of the chapter foreshadows what's to come. Notice the contrast here. We'll just read it and I'll only make a, a couple comments. So verse 13, David's anointed and the Spirit comes on him. Now verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Spirit came upon David, departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God had come, came to Saul, that David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. This is the beginning of what we call this, this age of two kings. Saul on the throne still, but deteriorating. David anointed, but eventually hunted and on the ascendancy, but not ruling, not until 2 Samuel. This is a brief chart that I put up a couple weeks ago to kind of see how these overlap. In 1 Samuel, which goes to this line here, we see the rise of Saul beginning in chapter 8, peaking in probably chapter 12, and then a slow decline, tragic decline. But while that's happening, David is on the ascendancy here in chapter 16. So for the rest of this book, as you're continuing your reading, if you're part of this reading plan, you'll see the interaction between these two dominate the rest of the book until the end of 1 Samuel and the end of Saul. And then David continues his rise until the great sin that he was writing about in Psalm 51. So that's what's to come. I encourage you to, even if you maybe lost track of where we were at, just pick up your Bible uh, chapter 21 is where you start reading this week, and just, just start reading five chapters, and you can just continue along with us. Okay, what are we supposed to get out of this? We don't want to just take it as a, a neat story. It's not there as a neat story. It, it shows the way David prepares the way for the Messiah. Uh, that, that's ultimately where it fits in the Bible's storyline. There's some specific things I think we can learn from this with our lives now. First, 
we have to ask the question, are, are you more concerned about your outward appearance or about your heart? What are you most concerned about, honestly? It's not wrong to go to the gym. It's not wrong to, like, find nice clothing, to, to get the right haircut and all that. It, those aren't wrong things in themselves. But if that's what you're prioritizing and you're neglecting the heart, that's what's warned about in this passage. God cares about, about your heart, about your heart. Sometimes we feel pressure to hide what's going on in our heart because we, we know that it's not right. We know that, that there is sin there because it runs through each of us and we don't know what to do with it. That is the beauty of the gospel is we bring these broken, tainted, wicked hearts to God. We don't lie about them. We don't pretend they're not there. We don't clean up the outside. We bring it to God. And so that's the next question. Have you, have you asked God for a clean heart? It was David's prayer in Psalm 51. Lord, give me a clean heart. That's essentially what all of us need to do in coming to saving faith in Christ. The, the heart of the gospel is that our hearts are broken, wicked, sinful, and it shows itself in all sorts of ways. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life with a perfect heart. He died in our place so that we come and we say, God, give us a clean heart. And he not only forgives us for those things we are trying to hide, he gives us a new heart. He, he cleanses our hearts. E- even passages that talk about baptism show this appeal for a, a clean heart. This is in 1 Peter 3.21. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not this, this water itself. It's not the act. It says, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, what saves is you come to God and you say, God, I have a broken conscience. I have sinned against my conscience and against you. Forgive me. And he cleanses and he gives you what he calls here a good conscience. And then as we're baptized, it just pictures that. It says, Lord, I'm trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm trusting in you. So baptism is a picture of this inner reality of coming and saying, God, I need a clean heart.